um, Psalm 22, 7 through 11. All, so, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. But not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Thank you, Roy. You can grab a seat, and if you want, you can open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 23. We're actually finishing up today a, um, a journey in Luke's gospel, looking at the words of Jesus, especially in the, the opportunities that Jesus had to interact in a land called Samaria on his way from Jerusalem to, or away from Judea in the north to Jerusalem in the south to where we got last week, where he's just before he is going to go to the cross. And so for the last few months, we've looked at all these narratives and parables of Jesus as he's meandered through this, this land of Samaria, this semi-secular, semi-religious um, land in which most Jews would have avoided. But Jesus went and took his disciples through this long little journey through uh, in a way really to show us what it looked like to live um, really a faithful and daily life, what the kingdom of God might actually look like for us in the midst of a land somewhat similar. Um, a land mixed of religion and faith, of nationalism and all kinds of other things, of politics and those who wanted things of, of God, those who didn't want anything to do with God and everything in between. And for the last few months, we've looked at the, the words that Jesus used and how he used those words to shape how we speak of him and what that means for us as ones who know him uh, in the land of Samaria as well. But as we kind of end our journey, we end where Jesus ended. Um, we end at this place of the cross, a place that if you've grown up in the church at all, if you know much uh, about uh, our Christian faith is, is kind of the symbol of our faith, right? Um, a place where um, it's kind of the, literally the crux of our faith. This happens here on the cross. And the words just read, that Roy just read in Psalm 22, um, are, it should sound familiar to us. These words, though they were penned centuries prior, aptly describe the events and emotions of Jesus following the garden prayer that we looked at last week that Chaz led us through. Luke describes the scene this way in Luke chapter 23, verse 33 says, And when they came to the place called the skull or Golgotha, there they crucified him, Jesus. A couple of verses later in verse 35, the people stood by, they stood and watched. But the ruler scoffed at Jesus, saying, just as the psalmist said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Perhaps the similarity between what was happening there in the moment um, of Jesus' death, the, the onlookers looking at him, mocking him, scoffing at him. Perhaps the, the, all the, the emotion and agony of the night before in the garden, of the, um, the, the trumped-up trial and charges, all the things that had taken place in the previous 24 hours. Perhaps these are the reasons why Jesus' first prayer on the cross is the very first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist cried. And Jesus in Matthew 27 says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, Jesus was always going to wind up here. He knew it. All the way through the Samaritan journeys, the, 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 the chapters nine and a half to 19 and a half that we looked at for the last few months, Jesus knew, even though it was this meandering path, that he would wind up here in Jerusalem at this place. In fact, he said at one point in the journey that this is the purpose for which I've come. For this hour, I've meant to come. Three times in Luke's gospel, he tells the disciples what he's going to. It's not like Jesus wound up at this place unknowingly. He knew exactly where he was going and he knew why he was going there. And the truth is, if we follow Jesus, this is where we end up to. If we follow Jesus, we'll end up at the same place. In fact, just a few verses or a few chapters before, Jesus says to the same disciples at the very beginning of their journey into the Samaritan lands. He says, if you would come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus knew that he was inviting his disciples to the same place that he was going to be. The way of Jesus, a life liberated from slavery, oppression, and blindness, the thing that marked the beginning of his, of his ministry, right? Remember in chapter 4, Luke chapter 4? I think there's a slide up there for it. 
a life in step with our Father's heart and participating in his acting in the world always requires a giving up of self. Always. A willful dying of self-absorption, of self-obsession, of self-fulfillment, of self-ambition for the sake of another, of others, is always where Jesus leads us. This is always where Jesus has been trying to take us, even through the Samaritan lands. We haven't even learned this lesson through Jesus' stories and conversations in Samaria. Hasn't all of his interactions with both the religious and the non-religious been this? That it's not about self-absorption, self-fulfillment, self-ambition, but it's about the other. The other in need, the other, and what the other can offer you even if you don't feel like you have need. The value of other. The removing of self into something larger than yourself. And as we looked at even a few weeks ago, the reality that using what God's given you, the faith God's given you, the abilities God's given you, always produces not more, um, more luxury, but more responsibility. And to hide what God's given you actually shrinks your life. To keep it to yourself and to try to hold tight what is yours actually makes your life less. Haven't we learned that, as Eugene Peterson once said, Christians die twice? The first death is when we set out to follow Jesus. We deny self, take up the cross, and choose to live obediently and believingly in his sacrificial company and not pridefully isolated on our own. That's our first death. It's the first death he invited into us at the very beginning, at the very beginning of our journey. Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Die to self-absorption, self-fulfillment, self-ambition for the sake of another. Don't be isolated in your own little world, but be a part of something much bigger. The kingdom that liberates, that frees, that brings sight to the blind. But here's the reality, and we saw it last week. There's no denying the agony of dying to self. Maybe in your own walk of faith, um, maybe in your time in the church, there's an over-celebration of this um, death of self. There's an assumption that dying to self because that's what's expected of us, should be easy and normal. Should be something that we don't fight or don't, don't agonize over. That we should just do it. And maybe even we should celebrate it. But the reality of dying to self, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, isn't denied in our scriptures. In fact, Jesus' first prayer from the cross certainly does not attempt to cover the reality into which we are led. The inevitable, non-negotiable element of being human and being a follower of Jesus. That is death of self. He doesn't try to hide his agony. We saw that last week in the cross, right? At the, in the garden. He doesn't hold back the, the real difficulty of dying to self in order to be a part of something more. Death, once again, quoting Peterson, cuts us off from our moorings. That is, from the, the thing that ties our ship of life to something secured. And so therefore, over a lifetime, what we find actually in our faith is that we die 10,000 many deaths if we're honest. That we don't just die one death, but we actually die 10,000 many deaths. If you've been in the faith for any amount of time, you know this is true, right? You can look at moments where you felt like probably multiple times in your walk of faith where it felt like you've been called to die to something. Something in you is dying. A self-fulfillment, a self-ambition, self-actualization, maybe even a, a, a self-perception of who God is and who you are. And it doesn't just happen once. It wasn't just like at your conversion at one point. It was, it was okay, I'm, I'm dying to self and now I'm following Jesus. It feels like over and over and again, like Jesus said, it's a daily cross. Maybe not every single day of our faith, but over and over again in our faith, right? There's many deaths that happen, many tiny little deaths that seem to be a constant in our life of faith. And so I think it's a good thing then for us that Jesus' first prayer is this prayer, a prayer of agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But a prayer of agony that, that has been shared by saints throughout the centuries that assumes, presumes, as Chaz pointed out last week, that it's a prayer that's heard. It's definitely a prayer of agony. Dying to self is an agonizing thing. It's not an easy thing. And if we don't, if we don't make this statement in the front end, everything we're about to talk about for the rest of the time in Luke chapter 23 is going to turn into some sort of um, um, overconfident, self-confident religious religiosity. But Jesus won't let that happen. He shows us in his agonizing prayer that dying to self is hard. 
And he invites us into letting ourselves be completely exposed and vulnerable in the difficulty of dying to self before one who hears us. Because the same psalm that starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, says these words. For he has not despised or hoarded the affliction of the afflicted. The one who cried out, the afflicted one crying out, feeling felt the abandonment, has, is one who's not actually abandoned. Who knows, even as he prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that he's not forsaken. That the emotions that he feels are real but not true. He feels abandoned. He feels like this is difficult, too hard for him, too much for him. But he knows and experiences the truth that he is not abandoned. That God's face is not hidden, but rather has, he has been heard. His cries have been heard. And listen, heard even by the one who could not keep himself alive even for the one who isn't rescued out of his cross, off of his cross, but still hangs upon it. That the answer to our agony isn't not death, but it's nearness even through death. And we'll find out even much more than that. This is Jesus' first prayer from the cross, but good things for us too, it's also not his last prayer from the cross. The willed and sacrificial death of self-absorption, of self-fulfillment, of self-ambition begins with this self-reflective admission of our agony through pray, prayer in a context of, assured, of an assured ear. And so prayer in the daily dying, our daily crosses, never terminates on us. It never ends with just us. Jesus kept praying on the cross because he prayed in, as Chaz pointed out last week, in a place of peace, in a place where he knew his prayers were heard, even if that meant that he wasn't going to be removed from the very agony that he was experiencing. And from that place of peace, he also prays for and with others. Jesus' prayers, rather than sucking down on himself and getting tighter and tighter on himself, actually begin to widen out and open up. In the midst of his own dying, he gets larger. His prayers get larger. His view of the world becomes larger. And his place in it becomes more sure. And I think that's what we'll see today as we look in the three prayers that Jesus speaks on the cross in Luke chapter 23. Prayers that have been repeated throughout the centuries. And listen to this. Maybe you didn't know this. But these prayers that we're about to pray have been prayed by Jesus' followers for thousands of years. These aren't just prayers to read and hear of what Jesus done. These are prayers that Jesus prays so that we might pray them with him. So that we might pray these prayers as his followers because it's prayed by those who not just want to follow Jesus to the cross, who know that, hey, I've taken up my daily cross. I'm ready to follow Jesus to it. But know that, just as Jesus did, that whoever loses their life for Jesus' sake will save it. Prayers of, that lead from agony to resurrection. The fact that agony is the very beginning of resurrection, as Jesus knew. And so let's do this. Let's just, for a second, let's just kind of quiet ourselves again, understand the context of what we're walking into. That here we have Jesus on the cross, Jesus in agony, not going, no, listen, he went to the cross, we know as the author of Hebrews said, with joy, the joy set before him, but we also know that he didn't enter the cross with some sort of like, hurrah, yay, I'm ready for this, right? Just as we looked at last week, he entered into dying to self, embracing the true reality of what death actually is. It's horrible. It's difficult. It takes everything. At the same time, it's not alone, and it's not the end. And so just for a second, let's close our eyes. Let's try to, as we read these words, in, read these words and these prayers of Jesus, as we begin to pray them together, with the perspective of ones who are willfully entering in death, not with the expectation to be rescued from death, but who are experiencing it, not fighting it, embraced it, and all that comes after it. So we pray with me just quietly. Just bow your heads. I'll be quiet for about 15 seconds, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll jump into the prayers.
Jesus, we we um, we die little deaths because you died the death. Everything in us wants to fight death. Even the little deaths. But I pray just for a few moments, Father Lord, that all that would cause us to fight, to hold on to our self-absorption, our self-fulfillment, our, our self-ambitions, that would want to keep us from the agony that leads to resurrection. That for just a few moments, by your grace and the power of your spirit, that you would allow us to just be on our crosses today with Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. If you want to read with me, it says this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This may be probably one of the more famous prayers of Jesus from the cross. Maybe just as famous as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I think it's important for us to know who the they and them include. Those, they and them include everyone you can imagine in the scene. And it's been in the scene for the previous 24 hours. Those who you would assume were undeniably complicit in Jesus' unjust execution. The high priest Caiaphas, who arranged the mock trial and led for the execution of Jesus. The Roman governor Pontius Pilate, who allowed the trumped-up charges to sit, stick. Judas, of course, the trusted apprentice who betrayed his master. All those in the crowd of faces who yell for Jesus' life to be taken instead of the convicted murderer Barabbas. All those who spat on Jesus as he carried his cross and mocked him as he fell under its weight. All those who beat him and cursed him. All those who in the next verse say they cast lots for his clothes. Even the criminal who hung next to him, who in just a few verses will challenge Jesus to take himself off the cross and to save them too. Who tries to provoke Jesus to do something for his own sake. Not for the sake of Jesus. Not because he believed Jesus, because he wanted himself to be taken down as well. All these, Jesus says, are the they and them, but also, not just these, also the 11 disciples who left Jesus in the garden. His closest friends who abandoned him in his time of desperate need, who denied him, who cursed him, who spared their own misfortune rather than sharing his, all those are included in them and they, and also those who simply stood by. Those who simply stood and watched, who did nothing to encourage the injustice of his death, nor did anything to end the injustice of his death. All those are the they and the them. For all those apparent enemies, assumed friends and followers, and the too many quiet observers, Jesus prays forgiveness. In the midst of his own agony, remember, in agony, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In agony, Lord, take this from me. In agony, he pleaded with his friends to stay up with them and pray with them, to support him. And in agony, he experienced all of their abandonment and all the injustice of society, of culture, of friends, of family. He experienced all of it. None of it was removed from him. And yet, what he prays for at this moment of cosmic injustice a truly innocent life taken in the most uninnocent of manners, a life giver traded for a life taker, a healer broken, a king crucified without any of anyone's attempt to try to stop it, right? To try to rescue, to try to stand up for his king, their king. The final words are not justice, but mercy, compassion, forgiveness. In all the matters of wrongdoing, says Eugene Peterson, in all the matters of sin and all that has to do with what is wrong with the world and with us, is wrong with our enemies and our friends, forgiveness is the last word. Forgiveness is the last word. In the midst of his agony, Jesus prays for forgiveness. Would you and I? In the midst of experiencing 
and not being removed from all the death of self. And an experience of being not removed from the hurt of others, even the closest people to us, not just enemies, but friends. Do we pray for justice or do we pray for forgiveness? Listen, justice matters. What is good, true, and beautiful, what is right, having its way, overcoming and putting down what is wrong, false, destructive, and evil is the only foundation for history and future that is ordered and not chaotic, right? What is good, true, and beautiful, triumphing over what is false, destructive, and evil is what gives continuity to our lives. The hope of that, right? God squashing out evil is what we desire and what our lives strive to herald. A world made right. Isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what we strive to create and to do even in our own community in little pockets of life? Justice matters. And listen, forgiveness does not eliminate justice nor concerns our efforts for a just world, but, but forgiveness does make justice personal. It makes justice personal. Them and they. These are specific people. The them and they are not just random. These are the ones who slapped Jesus, who spoke against Jesus, who were friends with Jesus and abandoned Jesus. It not only makes justice personal, but it also makes it our truest witness to the good news of Jesus' liberation. For only someone who is genuinely free can freely forgive. Not only is justice personal, it can't just be a vague, vague them. When Jesus prays, he doesn't pray for a random them. He prays looking out on all of them, the actual them, seeing them do the very thing to him to end his life. It's personal, but it's also a witness to something more, to something free, to a life that's truly free. And so praying Jesus' forgiveness prayer, testified to by countless sisters and brothers in our faith, trains our spirits in exercising our freedom. It trains us, praying with Jesus this prayer, in the midst of our agony of self-denying, of self-dying. Praying this in the midst of our self-dying exercises our freedom to show compassion and not revenge. Understanding and not irritation. Acceptance of a fellow sinner, not rejection of a nameless, faceless other, them, they, way out away from us in the middle world. It also, and this may be key for all of us in any truly committed relationship, as a spouse, as a friend, as a parent, as a partner, as a, as a coworker, praying this prayer makes room for the possibility that they know not what they do. that they know not what they do. More specifically, that they don't know that they are hurting or defiling an image of God in you. They don't know who scheme they're caught up in. They don't know how shrunk their world is. And listen, this may be the hardest part of the prayer. To just simply pray forgiveness is one thing. But to pray forgiveness for they know not what they do, especially in this context, it seems absurd, right? Remember again who the them and they are. Most everyone in the group that Jesus forgives would find it hard to recognize their purposeful actions or inactions, even if they attempted to excuse them, right? Like Caiaphas knew what he was doing. Pilate knew what he was doing. Judas knew what he was doing. The disciples knew what they were doing. The onlookers who just stayed quiet knew what they were doing. Everyone in here knows what they are doing. They just don't know exactly why they're doing it. They're caught up in something, entangled in something, imprisoned in something that doesn't excuse their actions, but yet something that Jesus sees compels his compassion. Their being twisted in their own sin does not demand Jesus' justice, but his forgiveness. I mean, think about that, how incredible that is. He sees how twisted they are, how blind they are, how broken they are. And not just in a general sense, but in a sense it's actually harming him. 
and it compels him not to cry out for justice to the one who hears him in his agony, but to say forgiveness and to recognize that they're the ones who are actually in a worse spot than him. Jesus' prayer shows us that our response to those who hurt us, who take life from us, should be forgiveness. The reality is when we're dying to self, and maybe this is, this is hard for us to, to admit, but when we're dying to self, when the many deaths of life happen, it's usually in part, it's not just because um, something in us is broken. There's a piece of that, right? There's a piece that like our own sin is being put to death, but a lot of dying to self happens because it's in relationship to other people. Most of our death of self occurs because we're in relationship and context with others that are often doing things, operating in ways that aren't necessarily for our good. Or don't appear to be, right? Death of self actually doesn't really happen a whole lot in our own isolation. It happens in relationships with those that love us and we love, those that we work for, with the greater community that we're a part of. That's where we feel the agony of death of self most. And it's there that we have to learn to pray the prayer of Jesus, right? To pray in agony that we're heard, in context that we're heard, but also to be able to pray forgiveness. And praying this prayer allows forgiveness to not be weak sentimentality, but to be resurrection. A witness to something more new and forever happening within us in that very moment. A life liberated and free and thus able to convey freedom to others. If we don't want to be crushed by our crosses, we've got to see the bigger thing of what's happening. That those who feel like are hanging up us up on our cross actually know not what they do. And, but yet we're free to stay on the cross anyway. Which is so counter to everything that's human, right? And everything that's normal, everything that's American. <laughs> this is not normal for us. But I think this is what James, Jesus' brother, had in mind when later he wrote these words. He said, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty the law of freedom, the ones freed by Christ, everything that we've talked about for the last two months. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy, compassion, forgiveness, triumphs over judgment. Listen, forgiveness doesn't preclude justice. But if we're going to be ones who follow Jesus and die daily deaths in order that we might be a part of something more, the ones who get to live on the other side of our crosses as well, then our cry can't just be for justice. It has to be forgiveness. It's again, forgiveness doesn't preclude justice. It just wins out over it. It shows itself as more excellent champion than justice. What do we fight for? What are we fighting for now as humans in our own little worlds? In our own little worlds, we fight for justice, right? For justice for us. But what if we fought for forgiveness? What would look different about the way we are hurt by others and engage that hurtness? Just think about it. How would we respond to those who put us on the cross if our longing wasn't for justice, but for forgiveness? Again, not dismissing justice, but letting forgiveness be the champion of justice. After all, let's remember that Seeking forgiveness, forgiving, doesn't exclude the consequences and the realities of sin, right? The criminal next to Jesus received justice for his crimes, but not only justice, right? Think about it. Jesus prays his prayer, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and yet the criminals on the cross next to him still stay on the cross next to him. Right? I wonder why. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So do you not see yourself? Do you not know? Like you're dying just as this one's dying? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And, Jesus, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not save me from my cross, but remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the criminal, or Jesus said to the criminal, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Listen, we may not consider Jesus' conversation with the criminal a prayer, but isn't prayer a conversation? Is it meant to be? God speaks, we listen and then respond, and then God responds. I mean, that's the idea of prayer, right? If we've, as a faith family, we've talked about this for years, right? This is what prayer actually looks like. It's truly a conversation. We learn to hear God. God speaks to us sometimes in his written word, sometimes through others, sometimes in a still small voice of our own life, sometimes in different other ways. But God speaks, we listen, we respond, and God responds. This is actually what life together with God looks like. It's a conversation. And isn't that exactly what this criminal does on the cross? He listens to Jesus speak. Speak his woes and his agony in the context of being hurt by God and speak forgiveness to all of them in which he is included in them for they know not what they do. And yet he, he knows exactly what he's done, right? He's like, I'm on the, I am on my cross justly. I have committed whatever, whatever sort of act would cause someone to be crucified. I've done it, but this one is innocent. And the amazing thing is, Jesus answers him. He answers him. He answers him instantaneously, today. Not tomorrow, not in years to come, not after long preparation, but today. He answers him with unqualified, unconditional, truly, truly. Listen, nothing, nothing will keep today from happening. And what's going to happen today happen? Truly, without any condition. No opportunity to change your ways. Instantaneous today, unqualified, truly, presence. You will be with me. Jesus responds instantaneously, with unqualified presence, welcoming to presence, inviting into presence his kingdom. Amid his own dying, listen to this. This, is, this is, it has to be a little bit amazing, right? Think about it. What is happening to Jesus in this very moment when he's saying these things? Like what's going on? What's in his hands? Nails, right? What's in his feet? Through his, through his shins, nails, right? What's happened to him throughout this day? He's beaten and bloodied, bludgeoned. All the emotional things of family and friends abandoning him, all those things have happened. He's in the middle of his worst moment ever. The middle of his worst. And yet he hears and responds to one looking for life in the midst of his own dying. When we're at our worst, how do we respond to those around us? if we're honest. <laughs> if I'm honest, I respond very angrily. <laughs> At my worst, I'm really perturbed by someone coming in to my space, messing with my world, asking things of me that, that they shouldn't, don't need to be asking of me, or I feel like they could put off and wait if they were just conscious of me, right? Anybody else feel the same, experience the same? You're probably all holier than me. But like, you know, like it's kind of like those Snicker commercials, right? It's like, I haven't had my Snicker yet. So I'm like, I'm Betty White, you know? And like, that, that's, how, that's how I feel when I'm, when I'm self-absorbed in my own dying. But Jesus isn't. He's, he's not escaped from his dying. He's still in the middle of it. Everything that he's feeling in death, he's feeling in that very moment that the criminal asks him, asks life of him, asks something of him. And yet Jesus responds in the middle of his own dying to one desperate for life and declares immediate relationship in a place of belonging and responsibility for the one who's looking for something. Jesus is able in his own death 
to see salvation right around him. To extend salvation to the one right next to him, even in the midst of his death. How incredible is that? Because listen, there's no slow build. There's no testing over time, no hoops to jump through. Just a connection with Jesus to this person who's looking for it, right? In the midst of Jesus' worst moment, after being abandoned by everyone, someone is saying to him, hey, can I follow you? I mean, think about that. Like, that's the worst thing. It's like, I mean, look at all these people who said they would follow me and show they would follow me and they are just abandoning me and here you are, a criminal on the cross. Like, it'd be so easy to say no, right? But he says, he says, yes, come with me. Invites him in, into paradise, into God's garden, right? Listen, it's, the, the word there is meant to invoke an image of Genesis 1 and 2 for us. It's not just, hey, today you're going to be with me in this place that's really beautiful where we get to sit on the beach and we get to, 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 you know, to drink Mai Tais and all those kind of things in paradise, right? That's what we tend to think. No, I'm, today you're going to be with me back in relationship as it was meant to be. You're going to be who you are meant to be with responsibilities for the kingdom. You're going to be a part of something that you were not a part of here on earth right now. And right now you're, being, you're, being, you're dying, but soon you will be a part of something more than yourself. Today. Life whole and forever. Life that comes, again, with responsibility and community. At the moment of death, Jesus extends true life to the dying, a life in which the dying will know, be known and a part of something more than themselves. When we pray with Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, we open up the possibility of true life for others. And that's why this guy is talking to Jesus, right? Not just because Jesus is on the cross, not just because he's suffering, but because in his suffering, he cried out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? In his suffering, he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And because he witnessed to something more than himself, this man saw the witness and he responded and wanted to be a part of something more than himself. That's why we pray this second prayer. Not so much for ourselves. Listen, I'm not telling us we, like, listen, we can all pray the prayer of the criminal. And say, why do we mock Jesus when, when we're justifiably dying and he's, he's unjustly dying? We get that, right? Like we, we all know that we can pray that. But we actually pray Jesus' prayer. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why do we pray that prayer? We pray that as a prayer as a witness to our resurrection. What we know is true of us on the other side. That we are a part of something more. That today, just as that person will be in paradise, in a place of wholeness, so will we. That one day we travel in the midst of, through our crosses, into the midst of something whole and full and true. And so we invite them into life with us as witnesses to the life that we have in faith that what's true of us will be true of them. Jesus' prayed response extends from what he knows to be true of his own circumstances. That his death leads to life whole and forever and for another. Listen, praying forgiveness might be easier than inviting others into life with God with us. Because remember, what, what usually makes us feel the agony of self-death? Relationships. And yet in the midst of feeling the pangs of relationship, Jesus invites another into relationship. It seems so counterintuitive, right? When it seems like we would want to isolate and pull from community and life from the needs of others around us and be justified in doing so. We're on the cross. We're actually called in that moment to extend life to others, to invite others into life whole and full and good. Praying forgiveness, this prayer of forgiveness, again, might be easier than praying the, the prayer of um, invitation. That's why we pray these words of Jesus, to strengthen us with his shared life. That we might, as James said, act upon it, upon the law of liberty. Not just say it, but to act upon it. That even in the most broken parts of our living, that what we need is not an isolation from the things that seem to be killing us, 
but an invitation of those who long for life. Again, it seems completely counterintuitive, right? And yet it's the very thing that Jesus does and asks us to do. And it's from this place of recognizing what is on the other side of our evenly daily dying crosses, recognizing that because I'm free, I can forgive, because what I go to is wholeness and fullness. What I long for is wholeness and fullness in paradise, a life of responsibility and community, of relationship with God that's right and true. Because that's what I'm going to, I can invite others into it, even in the midst of my own dying. And because of they can see that, Jesus can pray this final prayer. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light faded and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Listen, I don't know how you read that prayer, but a lot of us have read that prayer as a recognition prayer, like a re resigning prayer. Okay, Lord, it's done now. In John's gospel, like this prayer comes before the last prayer, it's, it is finished. We kind of read it kind of in the same vein, right? Like if you're on it, like maybe, maybe not. But most of us, a lot, a lot of people throughout history have. But it's not really a prayer of giving up. It's rather a prayer of entering in. I mean, notice the exclamation mark. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. This is Jesus with all of his energy that's left in him. Declaring to the Father his loyalty his fidelity, his trust, his commitment. Listen, Jesus is not resigning to his circumstances. He's not saying, okay, it's done. I finished it, right? He sees deeper into the, his experiences. He is entering into the work of salvation in which everything he experienced has been put to use of salvation. Isn't that what we just witnessed, right? Like, what did we just witness? that Jesus' death isn't just a means to salvation, it was the actual salvation of the, the criminal who was on the cross, right? Jesus' undenied agony expressed in presumed earshot of the one who loved him and has power over everything is, that he's experiencing, followed by a prayer for mercy and forgiveness over justice, rather than justice for himself, led to the salvation of the dying, led to salvation in the midst of the cross, on the cross, not just after it. Jesus' prayer is a prayer of complete, unmeasured trust, a prayer of peace amid the agony, chaos, and ugliness of death, a prayer that recognizes that even in the darkest moment, that salvation is not merely coming, but is being worked out in and through that very moment for both us and our neighbor. God's work for us and our neighbor is not merely what happens after our daily deaths, the transformation of character that comes through our daily dying, but is actually the work of, that he's doing in the midst of them, through them. That Jesus is saying to the Father, even this death is salvation. Not just leads to it. I'm fully committed, I fully trust that the circumstances that I'm in right now, the, the cross in which I'm on right now is salvation. Not just leads to it. A trusting childlike prayer is Jesus at our Golgotha's. When life has been totaled, wrecked, fills at its end, is rarely our first response, right? I mean, think about it. That's what Jesus is praying. This is, your, this is your will, this is your salvation. No longer am I praying, please remove this from me. This is it. This is your salvation. This is what you are doing. This is how you're working out both my salvation and the salvation of others in this very moment. Not just the transformation that comes on the back end. Not just the preparation. This isn't just preparation for a life of being a part of your work. This is the life of your work. This daily cross. Listen, we don't get to that prayer easily, right? It's not generally the first prayer we pray. And it wasn't Jesus either. Remember, he prayed in agony, but then for mercy over justice and resurrection for another as he saw his own resurrection coming. 
Finally, he prays a simple trust in God's providence and grace and what he was actually experiencing. The, the French priest, Jean-Pierre de Cassad, he said it this way. If we have abandoned ourselves to God, which is what Jesus is doing in this prayer, right? He's abandoning himself. Father, unto you I commit my spirit. A complete abandonment to God. There's only one rule for us then. The duty of the present moment. Jesus fully enters into his calling at this moment. At the moment of the cross. He fully enters into his calling. He no longer is preparing for action, but he is acting. This is not a prayer for tomorrow, our Father's will to come, but for today, the work we're made for at this moment, the kingdom work, affection and responsibility at this present moment. That's what the prayer is. He's, Jesus isn't committing his spirit for tomorrow. He's saying today I am fully and truly, completely and totally who I am. Who I am in you, in your kingdom, in my part to play. Well, it's Jesus' final prayer, at least in Luke's gospel on the cross. Perhaps it should be our first prayer. As we wake up each morning, take up our daily cross to follow him. A prayer we pray when we roll out of bed into life of a new day in which there may come a mini death. A death of self, self-absorption, self-obsession, self-fulfillment, self-ambition at work. A death of self in the relationships and expectations of our home, of our relationships. A death of self in the typical tasks, in the unexpected events and opportunities. A prayer that if we begin to pray this as Jesus prays it, prays it with Jesus, a prayer of trust that whatever we are experiencing, not discounting the agony of the immediate circumstances nor the hope of the future possibilities, right? But Jesus doesn't pray this prayer discounting the, the real pain of death of self. And he doesn't pray this prayer discounting the hope of resurrection, Right? But in this prayer, he prays in this moment that everything that might come before us today in our deaths might be the use of salvation, our own and others. Jesus is a prayer of the truly free who knows themselves as free to do what they were made for, which is something more than themselves. We can only pray this prayer. We only pray this prayer and truly experience this prayer when we pray it as ones who know we're free, that we're made for something more, for these very moments of salvation that happen in our many deaths. Not just our salvation, but the salvation of those around us. It's a tall order, I know, to pray these prayers with Jesus. It's probably why the church over centuries has kind of set aside special times throughout the year um, to, to step out of the normal rhythms and pray these things. Because it's a, it's a huge weight. But in all honesty, these stories are given to us. These stories are told to us. Jesus invites us to daily take our cross. This up. So maybe rather than just once a year in the season of Lent or maybe even at Christmas time and in Advent, depending on the different traditions, maybe these prayers become our prayers on a regular basis. As we learn to be ones who follow Jesus through the land of Samaria to our crosses, and find ourselves in our own deaths being a part of something more, a life that's more, committed to a life that's bigger and more than ourselves and freely living that life. So this morning, here's what I want us to do. Just as we begin to practice this together more and more as a faith family, let's just take a few moments to pray with Jesus on the cross. Choose one, just pick one. Maybe for about a minute or so, we'll just be quiet We'll let you kind of ask the Lord, Lord, where am I on the cross? On my daily death? What is it that I'm dying to today, this week? What self-ambition, self-fulfillment, self-absorption needs to be laid down in something specific? I mean, think about it. Again, we're not, very rarely are we called to die to self just generally, right? It always happens in the context of relationship. Maybe it's relationship with God. Maybe it's a relationship with your spouse. Maybe it's a relationship with a coworker or a neighbor. But where is God leading you to die? It could be an unjust death. Jesus' death was unjust. Are you at the point where you're just feeling the agony of death? It's normal. It's okay. 
So cry out with Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And remember the psalm doesn't end there, but only begins there, right? Maybe, maybe you're past just the agony of it and you're beginning to empathize and see the brokenness of the one who offended you, who's hurting you, who's killing you, who's putting you to death, whom you're dying for. So then pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or maybe you're having a hard time seeing that. And so you pray, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And help me believe that. And just keep praying it until you believe it. Or maybe, maybe there's someone around you in the midst of your own frustration and agony who's something, they're doing something to invite themselves into life. They're asking something of you that you don't feel like because you're absorbed in your own self-death, you don't feel like you can give. Or you don't want to give or it's too hard to give. Pray the prayer and ask the Lord that you may be one who extends the invitation into relationship, into life, whole and full. Or maybe, maybe you've walked through all that and you're ready, as Jesus was, to see that even in your dying, there is salvation. You don't need to be removed from the cross. And it's not just preparation, you're not just preparing for a life of being a part of God's kingdom and salvation. Right now is the moment where it's happening. And so you commit yourself fully to it. Trusting fully that where you're at right now, not on the other side of where you're at, but where you're at right now is where you need to be in the spirit with the Father. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray for us. And as I pray, I invite you just to close your eyes or look down, whatever helps you kind of be, be a little still. And then we're just going to have a couple minutes of quiet. And you can pray one of these prayers. And then Chaz and Chris will lead us into worship, okay? Pray with me. Father, we thank you that your son not only died for us, to remove from us death eternal, the agony of separation, full and true. But that showed us even in his dying, Father Lord, how we might die the many deaths that make us more like you, that make us more who we're made to be with you and with others. I know most of the men and women in this room, Father Lord, I know they long to be ones who respond to Jesus' invitation to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. So I pray as we do so, with the expectation of resurrection, Father Lord, we would not miss in all of our preparations for life full and whole, would not miss salvation actually happening on the cross. For ourselves, for one another, for our neighbors. Father, we pray with your son and in his name. Amen.